Detroit, Michigan for episode 12 of the Beirut Banyan. And we're joined today by Sam Deher, a journalist who's covered the Middle East for over 15 years, and from 2012 to 2014 was the only Western correspondent based in Damascus. But before we get to Sam, if you're enjoying these episodes, please consider a contribution through Patreon. Simply click on the link in the details box below or visit our website, BeirutBanyan.com, and click on the Patreon button. Contributions help keep this podcast independent and intimate. No advertisers limiting the scope of the conversation, and no Skype calls limiting the interaction and communication needed for a good story. Please contribute as much as you'd like. Sam Deher is best known for his reporting on the Syrian uprising, as well as the Arab Spring at large, and America's invasion of Iraq. But Sam's professional career begins in investment banking, and he spent several years living in Moscow before turning his career into financial reporting. And in the 1990s, Sam began covering Eastern Europe, and he witnessed up front the massive societal changes that happened with the end of communism. And Sam's coverage of these major events helps bring a human and emotional perspective to what's happened in Syria. His extensive reporting on Syria helped pave the way for his recent book, Assad or Reburn the Country. And if you're interested in purchasing the book, there is a link in the details box as well. Sam is currently giving a book tour in the U.S., and I managed to see him give one of his talks in Dearborn, Michigan, at the Arab American National Museum. And if you follow Sam on social media, his Twitter account, his Facebook page, or his website, linked below, you'll see which city he's visiting next. And I highly recommend watching Sam deliver his talk. His passion radiates through his presentation. If you stick to the end of this episode, you'll hear a small snippet from Dearborn. We cover all these topics and more in my conversation with Sam Deher. For episode 12... I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. What took you from banking to journalism? I went to New York uh, in the early 90s. I worked on Wall Street with a firm that was uh, investing in Eastern Europe and, uh, and Russia. All these countries in Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union um, were basically shifting from this uh, uh, command economy to, uh, to a market economy. And for a lot of American uh, uh, banks and uh, investment funds and lawyers and uh, insurance companies and big companies, I mean, these, these, these countries were like the frontier. I mean... Uh, there was a lot of uh, big business to be had there. So I, I started traveling to these places, um, and I spent a lot of time in, in Moscow. Um, but by then, I mean, I, I sensed that I was more interested in the people, the places, you know, discovering the stories of these places, the history of these places, uh, than actually uh, making money. And as you know, you have to be motivated by, uh, by money in order to succeed in finance. There's nothing Middle East at that moment happening, at least in your professional career. Uh, no, but obviously these places all had fascinating stories. Yes. I mean, when you're talking yes. about a place like the Czech Republic mm -hmm. or uh, the Baltic uh, states yeah. um, that emerged after the, you know, the fall of uh, the Soviet Union or Russia itself. I mean, at the time, yeah. a country in transition, uh, you know, grappling with this post-Soviet era, um, era uh, was fascinating. Uh, so, un you know, witnessing all of that, understanding all of that, for me, was really incredible. I was fortunate. But again, if you were in finance and banking, you, you have to be motivated by, you know, making money, you know, going there uh, and talking to your clients and dealing with your clients for the sole purpose of making money. This shows you the power of storytelling. Exactly. And was it was it something that sparked your curiosity in the stories of these people? Was it a particular moment that you saw yourself maybe diverging from finance only into other terrain? Was it the suffering of people that you met, or was it simply the adjustments people were making to something brand new? I mean, all, all of these things. I mean, when I started to be being invited to people's homes mm -hmm. to their 
uh, weddings to their funerals. I mean, yeah. you, you you got to actually the chance to to uh, come face to face with people, and yes. they started telling you their stories. And obviously, I was impacted by it. Yeah, and uh, and people even going back to. To, to history, to Soviet time, people talking mm. about how they, they were impacted by the Stalin purges, for instance, uh, for me was was a very impactful moment. I always think of this of Eastern Europe and Russia, post nineteen eighty nine, post Soviet empire, parallel to the Middle East, even though they took a different route, and eventually they moved in a better direction, but it's it's the same sort of springboard, if you will. There's an old world order ending. Both regions are able at that moment to perhaps shift gears. One does, ours does it later. It takes us uh, maybe two and a half, three decades. But we're both on the same sort of terrain. And my interest in storytelling is, I think, related to what you're describing, which is hearing people's stories in places you would least expect it. And maybe the, uh, the emotion that comes out of something that you wouldn't expect either. And that also has to do with money. Uh, I wonder the economic burden that people faced in that part of the world. Did you find any similarities there that you did later in the Middle East, that people were yearning for change, not just politics, or not just, not just the system itself, but also financial reawakening that includes we deserve less corruption? Was all that in the mix when you were there? Absolutely, mm. absolutely. I mean, I, uh, that's what people were talking about. Yeah. Like... Um, you know, they were resentful of this new class of, uh, you know, crony capitalists that were emerging out of the ashes of the Soviet Union. They were expecting something else, something yeah. better. Yeah. You know, when they were told that finally democracy was coming to Russia they, uh, and, uh, you know, the first McDonald's opened, the, the promise of, you know, the, the middle class rising up and all of that. I mean, yes, life did get better for some people who were maybe working for these oligarchs, for the, but the majority of the people, I mean, which is probably very similar to a lot of the Arab countries. Yeah. I mean, the people like working in the companies owned by these oligarchs were start, starting to do well. Yes. But the majority of the people were having a hard time catching up to these realities of this new system. And obviously, they were very resentful of this clique that was around, uh, you know, Boris Yeltsin and, yeah. uh, and his aides and that were... Uh, you know, making all the decisions and, in a way, running the state at the time yeah. uh, to, to benefit themselves, to enrich themselves and their families, but in a very obscene way, in a very vulgar way. And, yeah. and that all, all of this, you could say, uh, set the ground for someone like Putin to, to emerge. Yes. I'm going to jump ahead a bit. The, Rus the Russian uh, readjustment, if you will, from democracy or, or towards democracy back to authoritarianism. In your mind, is there a parallel between what's happening in the Middle East today with what happened in Russia in the late 90s, early 2000s with Putin's arrival? A sort of tendency to step away or shy away from democracy and hold on to top-down, heavy-handed authoritarianism. Very similar, yes, absolutely. Mm. I mean, this is why... Um, Russia instinctively understood when the Arab Spring started yes. that that movement also posed a threat to, to Russia itself. Do you think that was in the mindset of Russian leaders that this is what we went through and we can we can stop this if we want to? No, absolutely. I mean, because if you, if you remember, I mean, the, the, there were protests in Russia already, yeah. Yeah. you know, when, when Putin was uh, re-elected, I believe, in 2012. Yes. yes. I mean, obviously, he blames the, the U.S. for engineering these protests. But... The protests were real. The opposition was real. Yeah. I mean, the 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 Russians. I mean, this is this is a proud uh, uh, society. Uh, you know, you, you can't you can't rule it like that. I mean, people yeah. were 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 asking for their rights. There was a an ability to move away from authoritarianism and dictatorship towards democracy that was stunted and eventually destroyed. And I'm just wondering if, if the Russian regime, if they were able to project and see that this was happening in the Middle East and we're going to stop that, in particular in a country that I'm sure they were very worried about, which is Syria. I mean, I would say this, obviously the spirit of the Arab Spring, I mean, these people, people rising up and, chal and challenging their leaders and, uh, you know, 
these autocrats that have been in place for so long uh, posed a threat to not only Russia, to countries like China and other, you know, uh, authoritarian uh, regimes around the world. So I, I would definitely agree, I mean, with you that it definitely uh, wasn't the calculus of Putin, you yeah. know, that, that these... Uh, uh, uprisings and the spirit of these uprisings posed a real threat, because th- there there had been protests in Russia right. uh, yeah. before against yeah. what Putin was doing. I mean, for for years. Yeah, you're in a unique position because you have the tools necessary to gauge the financial mood of an audience, and you're also a a storyteller and a war correspondent. So I can't think of someone better suited to then cover the Arab Spring, because you saw another spring. You saw the post-Velvet Revolution in the Czech Republic. You saw Poland. You saw Russia. And then you're in a, another part of the world that's experiencing largely the same situation. And you're, you've got the financial maybe measurement in the back of your mind. You know what people are craving for. And you've also gotten adjusted to storytelling. Did Russia ever come back in your mind when you were in Syria or in Iraq or anywhere in the Middle East, were you thinking back to the Russian days of your of your earlier career? Were you using anything from those years when you were covering the Middle East? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, many things. Just the, um, I mean, the corrupt systems mm. Uh, mm. is definitely. I mean, the the the, the crony capitalism, the yeah. um, the police state, uh, many parallels mm. in terms of. Uh, what you can say, what you can't say. I mean, obviously, yeah. the, there was a, I would, I would say, a, a Russian spring for a while. People were yeah. uh, criticizing, speaking, uh, challenging the system. All of that was was shut down. Yeah. So yes, I mean, lots of perils, similar grievances. I mean, let's, yeah. let's put it that way in terms right. of what the people want. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of, but obviously the, the histories of these places are different, and uh, right. And I think that's where the storytelling maybe takes on a role because you have to then dig back deeper into the stuff that's not discussed, at least on the on the superficial level. Right. Exactly. And and, and the experiences of these societies are vastly different as well. So. Yeah. Now let's get into your personal story. Your background is Middle Eastern. I mean, you're of Lebanese extract on both sides. Was your background ever part of your correspondence in the Middle East? Absolutely. Is that what eventually took you to the Middle East? Was it an emotional concern? Yes, and also the desire to understand why. Mm-hmm. You know, why 9-11 happened. Yeah. Uh, why the U.S. was about to invade Iraq and what was going to happen to the Iraqi people yeah. and how, how was that invasion going to affect the entire Middle East and... You know, yeah. all these questions were on my mind, and it was very personal for me as well. It wasn't only the desire to go there and become a, you know, a famous uh, uh, war correspondent. Uh, yeah. There was really an interest in the region, uh, emotional as well, yes, yeah. mm. I admit, and also uh, desire for knowledge, uh, because I didn't, I didn't grow up in the Middle East. I wanted to go back and yes. understand that part of the world a little bit better. Is there a defining moment where you said, you know what, I'm out of the banking sector, I'm out of finance, I'm now in journalism? Yeah, I would say like the um, 97 um, uh, financial crisis and the devaluation of the ruble mm. in Russia. You know, I was more interested in the storytelling, as you said, in the people, in the places, and uh, than actually just making money and, and being there, you know, for the purpose of, of, of enriching myself, yes. I think these are the traits necessary for war correspondence because you can't be a chauvinistic uh, guy with a cigar and a champagne bottle and a limousine. You need to have, I think, a sort of a tender heart to be able to then pursue a life of journalism. Because I, I really, and I say it over and over, the, that's a remarkable change. Wall Street banking, all that to the sort of front line in the Syrian war. These are very different environments. I think you have to have e- empathy. I mean, empathy, it's yeah. As simple as that. Yeah. I know that word is overused, but mm. it really boils down to that. How did you first enter the Middle East as a journalist? What was your first post? Iraq. Iraq. Uh, I mean, a few months after the uh, uh, 
the invasion and the toppling of uh, Saddam Hussein. I was I was in Baghdad in the fall of 2003. So we, I didn't, oh, I didn't wow. cover the invasion itself. I was working for Agence France Presse at the time, and I, I was on the desk in uh, in Cyprus. I was in Cyprus during the invasion, and then I, and then I went a few months afterward. And that's your first post in the Middle East. Yes. And did you want that post? Is something that you were absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, I was really so eager to to go there, understand what happened, yeah. uh, what was happening in the country after the invasion, how the Iraqis were dealing yes. with it, what was happening to society, every aspect of society. So you knew from your, you knew from your core that this is not Eastern Europe, that this is just so unrelated to the democratization of Eastern Europe. Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't just me. I mean, everybody was... No, I know, was, but it, because yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. but more about you, because you actually are seeing both. I mean, you saw the yeah. benefits of Eastern yes. Europe, and then you're seeing the consequences of military intervention. So the, so it's the, the jargon or the, the language coming out of Washington in those years was always about democracy, democracy, democracy. And just a case in point that this was not about democracy, at least for people on the ground. Absolutely not. I mean, like... Uh, I, I'll tell you, like, what some of the things that really uh, impacted me uh, was uh, uh, hearing the stories of uh, people who had been, who were assassinated just for the mere fact that they were uh, officers in the yeah. army under uh, Saddam or had taken part in the war against Iran, and uh, they were just assassinated in front of their homes. I mean, sometimes just standing outside of their home smoking a cigarette and yeah. um, uh, these militias that are tied to Iran just drive by and shoot this person. So I was seeing how um, the society was unraveling, how people yeah. were uh, now um, clinging to their you know, uh, tribal sectarian affiliations as their protection. I mean, under Saddam, yes, it was a, it was a rotten system, yeah. But everybody was under the boot, you know, and, and once that system is gone, uh, everything kind of comes up to the surface. All the, um, you know, animosities, the, the, the score yeah. settling yeah. Uh, comes up to the surface. So we yes. were witnessing that. We were witnessing how this society was unraveling. Yeah. Yes. As the, the U.S. was spinning this as like, no, things are working, and uh, you know we would go to these press briefings, and they would tell us like, you know, elections, and we're preparing for elections. Everything is fine. You guys are are too negative, and you you have to look at the things that work. Oh, to you as journalists, yes, that you're yes. spinning it the wrong way. Exactly. It's it's hard to forget these. I mean, this is now 15 years ago or so, but it's recent. It's recent history, very recent history. Do you think that moment of American desperation to install something decent in Iraq for that not to have worked. Do you think that is our missed opportunity when it comes to the Arab Spring? That because America was so hell-bent on trying to make Iraq work and did not succeed, that we lost a very important chance of having American help in ushering in a better Middle East in the Arab Spring? Or do you think America should has really nothing to do with what's happened the last few years? I, 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 I mean, I, I think the way America did it really set us back because the way America did it, you know, by... Forcing it. For, and, forcing yeah. it. Yeah. And, and then what came after the invasion yeah. was the perfect pretext for regimes that wanted to stay in power at any cost, like yeah. in Syria, to yeah. say to their people, don't you dare demand, you know, more freedom, uh, more rights, because look at look at what happened next door in Iraq. I mean, I, I heard that with my own ears when I was in Syria in 2005. Yes. Um, you know, yes. people saying, we don't want what happened to Iraq to, hap to happen to us here in Syria. Yeah. And this was the perfect gift to the regimes, to, to, to Iran, to Saudi Arabia. To, so I would, I, I, would, I would say the U.S. intervention set us back. Yeah. Uh, and the way it was done and the mistakes. So I would say it was a, it was a horrible decision from the get-go. Uh, the U.S. should have supported uh, democracy and change in the Middle East in other ways. Yes, yes. And there was an opportunity to do it 
in other ways back then, yeah. not not the way it was done in, in Iraq. I mean, I, I think we are still living with the consequences of, of that decision, even the emergence of ISIS later on. I mean, in 2014, you could trace it back to that moment. And you could probably trace back the the regime barbarianism to that moment, too, that they know what the cost is, that they know that they need to stay entrenched at all costs because they will not meet the same fate as Saddam. Right, but even Saddam himself, I mean, said, you know, if you come yeah. and invade and and, uh, and and take over Iraq, you know, you're going to take it, you're going to take it as a desert. As a desert, Every, yeah. Everything is going to be destroyed. We're not going to let you rule Iraq. I mean, right. uh, so that spirit of the regime, like wanting to destroy the country rather than leave yes. power was already there. Oh, I mean, so that's the template you think that the other regimes used? Uh, absolutely. I mean, all regimes throughout history, I mean, uh, mm. at, at, at least the ones in the, in, in the region, the whole country yeah. must be destroyed uh, before, we go. before we go. Yes. Now, in those years, in that mix, something unusual happens, and it's, it's unexpected. Lebanon's March 14 moment an anti-Syrian uprising, but in the mix there's more than just anti-Syrian slogans. It's about re-establishing Lebanon's sovereignty. It's about ending corruption. I mean, the majority on the streets on March 14, 2005, the overwhelming antagonism towards Syria, the yearning for something different. I mean, that reminded me of Prague in 1989 or, or Bucharest, I was not thinking Iraq, and I was not thinking, if, 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 it, if it's uh, more relevant, I wasn't even thinking Middle East examples. I was thinking, this seemed to be like a European uh, exploration at democratization. Do you think Lebanon is also sort of stunted because of the Iraq experience? Is it part of the same story, or is it something that's just an anomaly, that this is just an unusual event, a big figure was killed, and Lebanon tried, and it didn't succeed at shifting gears, at changing course. I would say, yes, I mean, in Lebanon, the, the Cedar Revolution or the independence uh, uprising, however you want to call it, uh, was part, I mean, obviously, uh, the, the assassination of Hariri was, was a the trigger, the, 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 trigger, the yeah. driver. But I think something much bigger was going on, and not just in Lebanon, I think in the entire region, uh, both before and after the invasion of Iraq. Uh, I mean, I would take you to, um, I mean, if we stay in, in, in that decade, I mean, you had something called the Damascus Spring. That's true. Uh, Five years earlier. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, that yeah. was a very important movement. People were, people rose up. They, yes, I mean, the, the circumstances were different. Uh, people wanted, at, at least in the beginning, mm. they felt they can affect change, uh, yes. almost like baby steps, I mean, within the system. And that was uh, supported by the system to a certain degree as well, so to, to yes. a very small degree. Not entirely, because, again, I mean, the system, Bashar came to power as the reformer, as the savior, but it was all pre-planned by the regime. They, they were, in a way, repackaging the, the mm. regime of, of Hafez yeah. uh, to a better adapted to you know the, the, the new millennium basically sure that's because true. Yeah. Uh, they knew all these regimes instinctively and 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 what they were actually also seeing on the ground that the youth in, across the Arab world yeah. were a real factor in all of this. And also what happened in the in the Eastern Europe was in the backs of their minds and, and what happened, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union. All of that, all of these were factors that they needed to reinvent, reinvigorate their regimes, repackage. I mean, that, those are the words I would use because the core of these regimes in the case of Syria, are still the same. I mean, yes, yes. You've got these this police state, this yeah. brutal police state at the core, but they wanted to put this shiny paper around this uh, 
you know, brutal regime. And the shiny paper was this young uh, doctor who uh, left a career in, in Europe to come back. So it's all intentional. Nothing is haphazard. Yeah. They know exactly what they're doing. He, uh, even his speech, if you go back and listen to his speech in Parliament when he was um, when he was sworn in, I mean, yes. I mean, they all they, they're so careful to, to to give this appearance of legitimacy. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, after he inherited power, they wanted to uh, give him that veneer of, of legitimacy to say, you know, he goes to Parliament, he goes through the mechanics of it, uh, delivers his speech. Uh, in that speech, yeah. uh, he said. Uh, uh, you know, our priority is is the economy, yes. not uh, political change. He was very clear. He said, "Look at we have to look at all the experiences around us." Mm. Uh, he was referring to Eastern Europe and 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 and, and Russia, uh, right. like the the bad experiences. Right. You know, look at look at what happened when uh, you know these systems collapsed so yeah. quickly, and uh, and people spoke about democracy, and look at what's happening in these countries. We don't want the same to happen in Syria, so we're just going to focus on economic and uh, change, reforming the education system. So we're going to tell you, you know, how reform yes. is going to happen, almost like the Chinese model. But you you put Lebanon's attempt or whatever flirtation with uprising and revolt to the Damascus Spring. And no, that, I, I wanted to basically what I wanted to say is the the youth were already a factor, mm. a, a big factor in the, in the Middle East. We're mm. starting to be a factor in all these countries in terms of that youth bulge. You know, people in their uh, late teens, early 20s, big segments of the populations yes. in all these countries. And the regimes knew that it, you know, they saw that, they saw the numbers, they knew that they needed to reinvent themselves. But the people were already starting to agitate in all these countries everywhere, whether it's Iraq, whether it's... Uh, yeah. Syria, um, uh, Egypt. Yeah. I mean, if you remember in Egypt in the early uh, uh, 2000s, yes, there was course. the Kafaya movement, yes. enough grassroots yeah. movement, also youth-driven. Yeah. So I would say something was in the air already. I mean, before and after the Iraq invasion. And, and, uh, and then Lebanon happened. I think a lot of people were hoping maybe it would go beyond just avenging the the uh, assassination of Hariri or getting the Syrians out, it would go almost to dismantling the whole system. It just time-wise, it doesn't fit in. You would, I would connect it to the Damascus Spring, and I think mm. Samir Qasir connected to the Damascus mm, Spring yes. eloquently yeah. in many of his writings, yeah. and I do agree with him, and he's quoted in my book uh, mm. about so the connection. It goes back to Assad at the end of absolutely, the day. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Because the Damascus Spring was crushed in Damascus. People initially were asking for reforms within the system. That, that was, that, those were the first steps. People were holding these uh, 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 forums. You know, the, they, the Syrians call them muntadayat. People would gather in, uh, in their uh, living rooms and, and talk about change and reform, initially within the system. But then when the system did not respond, people tried to push the envelope. They, were ask, they started asking for more, and they started to be bolder. They started to defy the system. Uh, the, 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 the intelligence services closed a lot of these uh, forums, and then people challenged the system. I mean, you'll see an episode in the book uh, just days before 9-11. I mean, this is, we're talking early, uh, early September. Uh, Riyadh Saif, one of the figures in, in the Damascus Spring, defies uh, the ban on the, on the forums, and hosts a big gathering in his home where people really lay it all out. Yeah. And they're all arrested, and then 9-11 happens. So that was the end of the Damascus Spring. But people, I mean, that desire for change was still there, and it manifested itself, I think, in Lebanon. So there's a natural link between the Damascus Spring and the March 14 moment, and the Assad regime is determined to crush both. Uh, and you reference Samir Asir as someone who's able to offer that perspective. Uh, I think uh, there's a quote in your book that you wanted to share about that. In the part where I, I talk about the car bombs that killed Gibran Twaini, the publisher of uh, An-Nahar, yes. and Samir Kassir, an, an editorialist in the same paper, uh, I introduce a quote by Samir Qasir in the summer 
um, from the summer of 2001. It was about the uh, Damascus Spring, and this is what he said. Uh, quote, What you can feel is that the Syrian intelligentsia was able to regain in record speed its ability to criticize and analyze, despite having been in the freezer for decades. What you can feel is that when the fear barrier collapses, it doesn't get rebuilt easily. End of quote. So these two countries are really tied together. Or their fates are tied together. Assad treats protests in Lebanon the way he treats protests in Syria. And I would also take you um, forward to 2011, um, to, this, to the spring of 2011. The fear barrier was breached then also when yes. people took to the streets. And the regime knew from the first moment... When I talk about the regime, I'm talking about Bashar, uh, his brother Maher, their cousin Hafiz Makhlouf. The family and, and, and the Mukhabarat and all the hardliners in the regime uh, knew from the, from the first moment that they needed to reinstate that fear barrier. Yes. Uh, so hence the shoot to kill orders from the first moment, like scare people off the streets, get them off the streets. I mean, the order were coming from... Uh, Bashar, from Maher, from Hafez, people need to be terrorized again. People need to go back home. And it was very systematic. I mean, when they arrested uh, uh, these peaceful activists in the beginning, I mean, returning them to their families as mut- mutilated corpses in, in, in uh, uh, May and June was very calculated. I mean, when the, when the family sees that, when the, the town sees that, everybody will be scared again. Their maneuvering space in Lebanon is a bit limited, that they could not destroy Lebanon on their way out. They actually did leave, or they let, the Syrian army itself did pack up and leave a month after the protest in March 14. Their ability to indirectly influence Lebanon today is huge. And this is, of course, getting into Syria's relationship with Iran and the Assad regime's relationship with Hezbollah. Is it too cynical just to say that these Syrians packed up and left, but they left Hezbollah to rule? Is that a sort of a too sort of cynical view of what's happened? Or do you think that the Syrian regime calculated their departure by saying, we don't need to micromanage Lebanon, we can let Hezbollah do it for us? I think their departure of Le- to, from Lebanon was a shock to the system, and you'll see it in the mm. in the book. Mm. I mean, when I when I talk about um, you know the the lead up to uh, two thousand six, the war, and and what happened afterwards, and and Bashar's reaction to the war. Uh, yes, I mean he felt that leaving Lebanon the way he left was humiliation. And he was determined to teach Lebanon and the Lebanese a lesson. And obviously his departure from Lebanon was an opportunity for Hezbollah and Iran. Now they are the, 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 the real power. They're, they're the ones who are going to fill the vacuum. They're the ones who are going to run the place. And, uh, but obviously Assad at the time looked to Iran and Hezbollah uh, to restore respect uh, to the regime. There's a scene in, in, in the book, uh, the day after the, ce- the ceasefire um, uh, in the 2006 war that, you know, that ended the war between Hezbollah and, uh, and Israel. Um, you see Bashar at the, at the, at the palace uh, telling his best friend Manaf, Klaas, uh, who was then a brigadier general in the Republican Guard, that uh, Hezbollah restored our dignity, our respect. He was ecstatic. He was happy. I mean, this is a war that, that killed hundreds of Lebanese and, and displaced uh, hundreds of thousands and destroyed towns and villages. He was happy. He was ecstatic. So it's, a, it's almost like a, a correction of that humiliation, that they're now, they look at Hezbollah as a way of regaining their own, I don't know what the word would be here, uh, their own vindication. Stature. It was almost yeah. like vindication. You yes. know that you you got you you drove me out of Lebanon. You forced me out. America, France, and the yeah. UN. And look what I did. Look yeah. look at what what's happening to Lebanon. Uh, you thought Lebanon would be sta- <laughs> uh, stable and, and prosperous, but uh, there's war. And then everybody who 
opposed me is going to die. I like a quote that you you uh, bring up you bring up in your book. Uh, it's just now going back to Hafez al-Assad's uh, relationship with Lebanon, and it's uh, it's sort of a two-part quote. The first says Hafez's foray into Lebanon exemplified a core regime strategy: feel the menace and create the problem, and then present yourself as the only one capable of ending it. And then there's a little part afterwards. The United States hoped Hafez could rein in what it saw as Soviet-backed fanatics running amok in Lebanon. We can just change the words here. Bashar, and instead of Soviet-run Soviet, run, Soviet uh, fighters, we can just say Daesh or ISIS. And it's the same, pro- same policy, which is America would rather see a strong man in Syria than a uh, legitimate overthrow of his rule that the chaos is just too, too chaotic. As long as the Assad family is around, who cares what they're doing in Lebanon? Who cares what they're doing in Syria? The better to have them than to have anything else. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't just, uh, that wouldn't be just uh, specific to Syria. I would, I would look at uh, U.S. policy in the whole region. I mean, not yeah. just U.S. policy, uh, French policy, British policy. Yeah. Uh, in the region. Let me boil it down to this. I mean, yeah. for, for all these countries, whether it's the U.S. and France and, and Britain, yeah. uh, they've always had this transactional relationship mm. with all these regimes. Yes. I, I would call them the bargains that these uh, countries yeah. um, that profess to uh, represent true democracy and uh, liberal values, the bargains that they struck uh, over the years with all the different regimes in uh, in um, in that in this part of the world, um, and again, uh, the reasons are different. First, we need to confront uh, the the Soviet Union and Soviet uh, encroachment uh, yes. uh, in the Middle East. Uh, we need to sell these regimes weapons, as in the case of uh, of the Gulf monarchies and uh, other big countries, or we need to. Uh, uh, secure oil supplies from the Gulf. So having the stability, having these monarchies, these strong regimes in place is beneficial. Or um, the thinking that maybe these stable regimes and uh, the people, the regimes that we know better than you know others that we don't know are good for um, Israel's security, yeah. um, are good for overall stability in the region. Uh, there's always something, or or maybe later in '79 to confront Iran and the Iran menace, the support way Washington Saddam. so yeah. supports Saddam. Yeah. In the case of of Syria, uh, things are, are are a little bit more um, nuanced, but the regime always knew how the U.S. thinks, how the U.S. operates, how the French operate, how mm. the British operate, uh, and they've always, in a way, blackmailed. Uh, these countries and the and these democracies. Um, I mean, in the beginning, uh, Hafez had was starting to have a good relationship with America. In in seventy four, Nixon visited uh, uh, Damascus, uh, and and Kissinger had brokered that agreement. Uh, you know, the, the that created the demilitarized zone uh, yes, in the Golan right. Heights. Right. Uh, so Assad was starting to be potentially an ally of America. He was getting money from the Gulf countries who were, you know, particularly Saudi Arabia. Um, and yes. he was also getting assistance from the Soviet Union. So he was basically getting support from everywhere. He was yep. trying to play all these uh, all these powers uh, to his, to his uh, benefit. And then when the civil war erupted in Lebanon, in a way, America... Uh, encouraged Hafez yep. to go in and, and, and restore order. And if you remember the Christians, That's uh, true. Uh, the, the presidents, uh, you know, uh, the, the Christian leaders, Shamo uh, uh, and Frangi and, uh, and Jamail, um, they were supportive of Hafez going in. And then um, when Hafez felt, you know, both his rule in, in Syria was was starting to be threatened and when his agenda in Lebanon started to be confronted by other forces, other players, he made it clear to the West that, you know, you come after me, you'll pay a heavy price. And hence the support, uh, direct and indirect support for uh, 
a range of terrorist groups that were operating in, in Lebanon at the time. And the message to, to, to the West was, come after me and you'll pay a heavy price. And then the yeah. West retreats. Uh, I mean, in the, in the case of France, uh, for yes. instance, I mean, they know that he ordered the assassination of their ambassador, but they go in 84 and they meet with him regardless, and they try to uh, have a detente with him. Uh, and the same, I would take you fast forward uh, to the sun uh, in the 2000s. Initially, he was uh, feted as the reformer. Yeah. I mean, in the book, you'll see Madeleine Albright there saying she's comforted by him taking over power from, uh, from his dad. And uh, uh, the French are supporting him. Chirac is there. The Saudis are giving him money. And 9-11 happens, and he's a partner in the war on terror. The CIA planes are stopping in Damascus uh, to hand over suspects to to torture. So initially, yes, he was a partner in many of these uh, endeavors. And then when he felt that his rule was threatened by the invasion of Iraq... And then when the French and the Americans collectively started put pre- putting pressure on him over Lebanon, obviously the Saudis felt that he maybe um, uh, cheated them because he, yeah. he told them that he would play nice in Lebanon and support Harir and all of that. What did he do? He burned Lebanon. He burned, and, and he yeah. also started supporting the insurgency in Iraq. And then yeah. the That's West true. retreated and... You'll see that in the book, you know, Kerry and John Kerry, who was at the time uh, uh, chairman of the of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and, and uh, yeah. Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, 2007. Yes. Yes. I mean, we talk about uh, uh, one presidential candidate now, Tulsi Gabbard, going to Damascus and meeting with him a couple of years ago. But let's not forget, 2007, uh, Pelosi went, Kerry went multiple times. Really, what is at stake now? One could could see Lebanon as a bargaining chip for Syrian influence in the region, especially vis-a-vis the Arab-Israeli conflict. And one could see Syria getting benefits to that, the regime. And this this could simply be money. It doesn't have to be that sophisticated. But what are they getting now from Syria, other than a destroyed country? I mean, now the regime is dependent on Iran and Russia primarily to stay in power, more so on Iran than Russia, because yes, Russia is there, uh, the military bases are there. Uh, I mean, we've seen that the the Russian military support was decisive uh, in 2015 onward, but the regime knows that the moment Iran withdraws, that would be the end of the regime. And, And so this is a nightmare for Hafiz. If Hafiz were alive, this would be the end of the end of the world. Absolutely. I mean, again, Iran was a partner yeah. of Hafiz, but it was a relationship of equals. Yes. Uh, Iran couldn't do anything in Lebanon yeah. without consulting with the Syrians. I mean, this was when Hafiz was alive, and maybe the first couple of years of Bashar's rule. Yeah. Uh, but the Iranians and Hezbollah knew that the ascent of Bashar was a tremendous opportunity. I mean, from the first moment, they knew that this guy needed them. I would take you back to the funeral of Havas in 2000. Yeah. So there was the official funeral in uh, uh, Damascus yeah. at the palace. Uh, Madeleine Albright came. Chirac she was, former, was there, I think. Yeah, the former Secretary of State uh, and Chirac and Wardley, Hosni Mubarak, I think. And then there was the unofficial sort of family yes. uh, mourning in Kardaha, which is their hometown. Guess who showed up to that one? Hassan Nasrallah, and and he sat uh, side by side next to Bashar al-Assad as. Uh, Hezbollah fighters who had come from Lebanon put on a parade to uh, pay tribute to Hafez and uh, to thank him for his support, which they said was uh, instrumental to the liberation of the South. Because you remember uh, yes, in May two thousand um, and May two uh, two thousand when Israel pulled out of uh, of the South, and so from the first moment, I think Iran and Hezbollah understood this was an opportunity for them to really go in, both inside Syria and in Lebanon, more importantly. And Hezbollah and Iran see that change in Damascus, Hafiz to Bashar, as the opportunity to assert their sway in the region. 
that they're going to step in and overtake Hafez's role of firefighter and fireman, f- fire starter and fireman at the same time. In Lebanon? Well, particularly in Lebanon at that time. But then later, not just in Lebanon, in Syria too and, and to Iraq. Right. I mean, obviously, I mean, for the Iranians, uh, it's not, I mean, Syria is like the jewel in the crown, yes. but there's all these other pieces too. Right. Uh, and you have to remember like what happened, you know, after the assass- assassination of, of, of Hariri, yeah. Bashar was really vulnerable. And that's when the Iranians stepped in and said, you know, hang on. Yeah. You know, we're here. We're going to stand by you. We're going to yes. protect you. Yes. And that's when actually, like I would say, and you see that in the book, that's when the, the, the doors were opened really wide for the Iranians and Hezbollah in by Damascus. H- Hafez's rule officially ends in 2005. He dies in 2000. But the regime that he set up ends in 2005. Right. I mean, but, but Bashar thinks he's like reinventing the regime, recalibrating the regime, asserting himself. But at the same time, Hezbollah and Iran are there. They have uh, access to everything. I mean, all the doors are wide open. Right. They were testing missiles at the... Uh, Yes. research facility, yeah. uh, everything was open to them. I mean, in the book, you'll see uh, Bashar's brother uh, and the role he played. And But Hafez kept Syria under his rule through his rule. Bashar could not keep Syria under his rule. And now Hezbollah and Iran and Russia, and that's his rule is now completely dependent on their persuasion. Absolutely. I mean, but but I would say Iran more so because Iran is really, I would say, like part of the family. It's in the uh, sort of in the uh, inner fabric of the regime. It's it's part of the inner circle. Uh, Russia, it's a different dynamic. I mean, obviously, Russia is trying to uh, take things into, uh, you know, more the state, the, the army and Iran has its own agenda. But Bashar knows that the moment Iran leaves Syria, he's finished, when he's only dependent on Putin. And the Iranians won't leave Syria also for their own reasons. I mean, all the blood that they've shed, all the money they've spent so far to, to keep Bashar afloat is not just like that, just because they like Bashar. But the Syrian revolt did, in a way, end the Syrian regime as we knew it. Absolutely, completely, as yeah. you know, completely. Yeah. I mean, the way the way the regime is trying to assert itself, yes. I mean, the 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 same tactics are back. The same uh, uh, fear is back. Uh, the statues of Hafez so, are going yes, back exactly. uh, in a lot of these towns. Yeah. I mean, that's how the regime is regaining it, uh, yeah. trying to project that it it is in control. But in reality, it's not. I mean, even all the Syrians who are now inside Syria know that the regime is, I mean, nobody has to uh, tell them this. I mean, they know it, that, that really the, 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 the decisions are made by uh, Russia and, and mainly by Iran also. I want to step away from the regime itself and now go into perspectives on the regime outside of the region. You have had to deal with horrible characters in the Middle East in your reporting. And if, I hope I got this right. You were the only Western correspondent in Syria for a stretch of time. In, in, in Damascus, from 2014 until 2016, you were the only Western press reporter in Damascus, at least officially. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, and I, I don't like the label Western because, I mean, I, I was working for a Western media yes. outlet. I would say maybe I was the uh, only non-Syrian who was uh, working officially Yes. or permanently based there because there were actually uh, Syrians secretly working for other outlets for their own right. um, s- security reasons. Uh, they were working for the likes of Reuters, NPR, yes. uh, New York Times. I mean, uh, they were reporting for these outlets, but uh, secretly, secretly, not with their own names. I was the only one there actually 
saying, I'm here, I'm based in Damascus. I'm officially here. I'm officially and, yeah. here. And that puts you in touch with horrible people by default. You're now face-to-face with thugs and, and, and vicious people, only for you to be there officially. And then you, you leave. And you're now, of course, we're here in Michigan, we're in Detroit. And you run into people that you would not expect to be sympathetic to that regime. And I wonder, is today, now that this regime seems to be lasting in its current state, how has Syrian propaganda, Syrian narrative, infected people here, where you have pro-Assad politicians, you have pro-Assad academics, you have people that are willing to speak and praise the Syrian regime in places where that kind of regime behavior should not be tolerated in the, in the slightest. I mean, first of all, I, I would just want to correct something. You said uh, left Syria. I, I didn't leave Syria out of my own free will. You were uh, they pushed, kicked me out, basically, out. Yeah. Uh, in uh, 2014 in August. In terms of what you're describing, now we're sitting here in Detroit and there's some people around us who see Assad uh, potentially as an ally in America's fight against what they call, quote, radical Islam, end of quote. I would say the regime knows this, Mm. and he wanted to bring the U.S. and the West to that exact place Mm. where they had to choose between him, Bashar al-Assad, or Daesh. So the regime... um, wanted to bring the U.S. and the West to that precise vote from the very beginning because it knows that once terrorism and extremism rears its head, then... They win. And he wins, in a way, and he's saved. Yes. And it's always happened. Yes. I mean, it's not only with him. It's with every other despot uh, in the Middle East. Uh, It has worked. So Bashar's story is just one of tyranny and and how tyrannical regimes behave? Not exactly. It's more complicated than that. But the the regime knows how to play the game better than all these other regimes. Mm. Uh, So from the first moment, I mean, the the, the people are on the streets are protesting. Do you think sectarianism is the reason why? That every dictator that had a similar revolt didn't succeed, had a relatively homogeneous population. Bashar al-Assad has a mix the way Lebanon has a mix, the way Iraq has a mix. Uh, that's, I think, part of the story. But mm. you know, in, in the case of the, the Assads, I mean, really, they, they've turned it into a, a, a manual. Mm. Uh, they, they've done this before. Mm. They've done it in the 70s and 80s under Hafez. Uh, they know how to do, do this when it comes to dealing with their own people and to dealing with the pressure from outside. Uh, on them to change or, or, or any threats from outside. They, they've honed these skills into a, into a manual and they really bring out this manual every time there is a challenge to their rule and it has worked for them so far. But obviously the, the consequences f- under Bashar now uh, are devastating and the price for survival is devastating. Yes. But still... Yeah. He considers it a win because he's still there. I mean, I would just take you to the beginning of the uprising. Uh, He let out from prison hundreds of of militants, uh, Al-Qaeda-linked terrorists that he had put himself in prison in the late uh, 2000s, in 2007 to 2008, to show the U.S. that, look, I'm... Uh, starting to crack down on terror. Uh, I'm policing the border with Iraq. I'm putting all these uh, extremists in prison. So I deserve sanctions relief. Don't go after me for the killing of Hariri. Don't put pressure on me. Look, I'm becoming a good uh, leader. Uh, I'm I'm becoming your partner. And they actually took the bait. I mean, he went to Paris. He was received by Sarkozy numerous times. Uh, you know, Western uh, officials trek to Damascus. He was back in the mix yes. after he had been ostracized following the assassination of Hariri. So those bargains were made before. I mean, the U.S. and France decided that this partnership with, with Bashar had to take precedence over justice for the, you know, for the killing of Hariri. So the manual comes from Lebanon. 
I mean, in partly, a way, in yeah. a partly, but yeah. I'm, I'm just saying. I mean, in the case, Lebanon was in the mix. Yes, was yes. was part of the was one of the bargaining chips at yeah. least uh, back then. You know, yes. the late uh, 2000. Right. Uh, so when the uprising started starts, he releases all these people that he had put in prison to please the Americans, yeah. and he knows that these people will these people will go to, uh, you know, form these armed groups, yeah. and he. Purposefully, I mean, this this I witnessed because I was there. He purposefully relinquishes entire you know regions along the border with Iraq because he knows that eventually they will be populated by extremists. And in fact, he, you know, to even be more blunt and direct, he addresses the West and 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 countries, you know, specifically France, Britain, and others. Uh, 2013. I mean, we still we didn't have any attacks in Paris anywhere. Berlin, uh, all all these attacks hadn't happened, and he 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 basically addressed the West and said, "Look, if you keep supporting my uh, opponents who are all terrorists, then terrorists will actually come and strike in your capitals." And in, in Syria, were you a, an American journalist or were you a Lebanese? Sam Deher from South Lebanon. I mean, I was I was lucky to to get a press card. Uh, I just befriended the guy at the National Media Council. Um, he said uh, this is a, a a body that had been created by the regime to show the outside world that you know they welcome they welcome yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, journalists. And obviously, you know, nothing happens that way. Yeah, uh, they need to do all the background checks and everything. But I was. Lucky because I mean I, I was there at that moment. The guy at the National Media Council said to me, "Do you want a press card?" I said, "Yes." I, he said, "Fill out the form, pay the fee, and come back, and we'll give you a press card." But obviously, oh. things are more involved than that. Yeah. Because then you have to deal with all the official bodies and not so official bodies yes. at the same yes. time. Yeah. So you have to deal with the Ministry of, of Information. Uh, you have to one way or another, deal with the intelligence services who are uh, inside the Ministry of Information and you have to but deal with people in the Army. in your background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For them yeah. Is, is, oh, he's Lebanese. He's from the South. Maybe yes. he'll be more sympathetic that to our cause. That was my point, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And he, they even said it to me. I mean, yeah. someone at the Ministry of Information said to me, don't forget who you are. Yeah. Don't forget your roots. Yeah. Uh, you are one of us. Even like when I obviously started to do my reporting, like, you know, any reporter would do just yeah. reporting what I was seeing. They would, they would, they were. They started to tell me, uh, "We're disappointed by you. We expected something else from you." Did you think you got your press card for those reasons? That perhaps, they, yeah, perhaps because mm-hmm. again, I mean, I, I was seeing with my own eyes how they wanted to manipulate the press yes. and, and how they succeeded in many places to manipulate uh, the media. I mean, they were bringing TV stations to Damascus to show them certain things that would be broadcast back home to affect public opinion back home. They knew exactly what they were doing. I mean, I, I, I met with... Uh, Is uh, that why you were kicked out of Syria? Because, pretty much, because yeah. you know I wasn't playing by their game. Yes. In fact, when I put in a request to interview uh, Bashar al-Assad, they summoned me to the palace. They say, we want to test you first. <laughs> Uh, would you be willing to write about the first lady and all the, you know, his wife Asma and all the wonderful things she's doing during the time of war? Uh, and then we'll see after that. So, I mean, it was pretty, pretty blunt. And they told you this in the palace. Yes, yes. And uh, I, I mean, I, I wanted to tell you a story in terms of how they manipulated the, the yeah. media. Yeah. Uh, they had um, this uh, on the surface was a. a, a fixing firm, you know, a, a firm that provided services to uh, reporters who were coming, you know, uh, transportation, uh, helping them, you know, uh, navigate through bu- bureaucracy, translation, all of that. With regime oversight. No, Mukhabarat oversight. Mukhabarat, I mean, yeah, the yeah. Mukhabarat was yeah. running the, this whole outfit. I, mean, yeah. I knew that. I knew the people who were behind this. And they were telling me, I mean, they were, they were saying, tomorrow, so-and-so is coming from this... Uh, you know, American TV station, and we're going to take him to prison to let him interview, uh, you know, terrorists that we've captured. And, or, or they were telling me things like, oh, today was such a great day because, you know, while this big TV station was here, 
uh, a huge bomb went off in the center of Damascus. So they were able to be there as, you know, the, 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 the cars were uh, in flames and they got this amazing footage, which they can show back in America to, sh- to show the public, you know, the, the terrorism that's affecting uh, Syria. And that's part of their narrative propaganda strategy. Absolutely. They always seem to deliver that message successfully. It is, it is, it is, and, and it's in a way comparable to, 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 to Lebanon. Yeah. I mean, like when Hezbollah yeah. wants people to see only certain things, and if you go outside of that narrative... That narrative was reaching the White House and the State Department as well. It wasn't just in certain media outlets or among academics or among low-level policy influencers that it was reaching the highest uh, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that there are real partners, not Saudi Arabia and these countries, who are in a way, according to that narrative, are the ones fueling this Takfiri menace. Just to bring this full circle, Sam, can you project beyond and say that there is any hope or any potential for a better future on either side? Putin's Russia and the authoritarianism there and your experiences in Russia in the 1990s, Syria today, and the Middle East at large, and the consequences of all that happened in the last few years. I mean, I would point you to what's happening in Russia now. People are not going away. People are taking to the streets, are protesting. People are speaking out at great cost. I mean, you get killed in in Russia at at some point if you threaten the system. Uh, And uh, in Syria, I would say what really um, gives me hope are the millions of Syrians outside now. Uh, I mean, you're talking about six million Syrians outside the country almost, almost six million, the majority of them in the region, in Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan, almost a million in Germany. These people are not giving up. I mean, they're still dreaming of change. They're still, you know, striving towards freedom and, and, and liberation and, and, and really attaining what they had come out on the streets for in, at the beginning of the, of the uprising. You didn't have that under Hafez. Yeah. You did not have six million people, the majority of them young people outside the country, still agitating, still dreaming, still hoping for change. And I think that's really powerful. We have up to 12 million Lebanese outside of Lebanon. And I don't think Lebanon is being steered in the right direction because of its diaspora. But I think the Lebanese diaspora are a real power if things one day work in Lebanon, you know, for the Lebanese who are there. Um, the, the diaspora is a huge asset. I wanted to live in Lebanon when I, when I moved back to the Middle East in 2003. Yes, I was covering all these wars, but I looked to Lebanon as my base, as yeah. my break from all these uh, wars. I hoped I could live in Lebanon, yeah. uh, but no longer. But it goes back to these two countries are so tied up together. And that is a lasting legacy of the Assad regime. And as you said, it's Assad or we burn the country. And I think that's the end of the day. It's just our, it's our generation that will have to pick up where, where these uh, proud, rebellious and revolutionary spirits didn't make it. And that's the reason why I wrote the book. And it's in the dedication and I can read that to you. Uh, and I dedicate it to the Syrians who rose up to demand freedom and dignity. Your heroism, sacrifice, and story will never be obscured by lies. Well, there you have it. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Ronnie. has all the ingredients necessary for the perspective needed when explaining the Syrian uprising to audiences worldwide. Check out Sam on his book tour, and again, get the book. It's linked below. Ingredients for a war correspondent, the personal and the professional life that took Sam to Syria. Change those ingredients, and you can have a very different career. And which ingredients land you where you may need to consult a chef. And next episode, we'll be speaking with Philippe Mesoud, 
a celebrated chef who owns and runs Elili Restaurant, an award-winning Manhattan institution. And Philippe will share his family's story of what took them to hospitality, to tragedy, and his own eventual departure from Lebanon. And to stay updated regularly with each new episode's release, please click on subscribe from your preferred podcast platform or subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Beirut Banyan. The ingredients for Philippe Mesoud's culinary career will be shared next week. And for this week with Sam Degher, we'll leave you with a small snippet from his book talk in Dearborn. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is The Beirut Banyan. The Cedar Revolution in Lebanon, it wasn't just about ending the Syrian occupation or kicking the Syrian soldiers out. It was about dismantling the country's deeply sectarian and feudal political system. This movement was snuffed out by war, terror, bombings, sectarian conflict, because the political leaders in Lebanon themselves understood that the threat of this cross-sectarian, youth-driven movement posed a, a serious threat to their hold on the country. We need to support the people of the region, the youth of the region, to try to chart their own path and win their freedom. Thank you.